Welcome back to another episode of PS Voice. Joining us today is Paula Subaki, a senior research fellow at the think tank Chatham House, a visiting professor at the University of Bologna, and an expert on global governance institutions. In this episode, Subaki is joined by former editor of The Economist John Andrews to discuss economic stagnation in the southern Eurozone countries, China's economic outlook, and London's future after Brexit. In this section, we discuss Trump and the world economy. Andre, you uh, kick off the, the meeting. Yeah, uh, Mario Draghi and Janet Yellen uh, used their speeches in, in Jackson Hole to address uh, the theme of the dangers of loosening uh, regulation on banks and, and financial markets, as we know is on the agenda of the Trump administration. Um, ten years after uh, the beginnings of the crisis, um, are we already uh, forgetting the lessons uh, of the crisis? Is there the risk? of deregulation? Well, I would say there is a risk that we are forgetting the, 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 the lesson of the crisis. I think there is a very different agenda from the Trump administration. And uh, I think, again, the, uh, I think we need to learn more about regulations. I think, uh, again, after the crisis, there have been this uh, uh, attempt to um, create a, a modern regulation, say, very importantly, a, a financial safety net, which is something that needed to be strengthened and uh, and improved. And I think we need to understand better the the relationship and and the links between, uh, let's say, macroeconomic policies and macroprudential regulations. Uh, there have been some steps done, but I think more need to be done. And and I think we need to really come out of this black and white situation where we need rules, we don't need rules. I think we need to understand why rules are and what are for and, and how rules talked to the macroeconomic context. Is there a risk, though, that uh, there will be a divergence between the rules in the US and the rules in the rest of the world, particularly in Europe? Yeah, there is a, this, this clear problem. And, uh, and again, one of the... Um, uh, issues that were addressed after the crisis, and particularly at the level of uh, global governance, let's like say the G20 uh, effort with the uh, Financial Stability Board, uh, was exactly to try to create a, a sort of uh, a level playing field mm. where countries, and particularly the major uh, uh, countries with the largest and the most important financial centers, could get together and really set up a common. Uh, set of rules. But maybe um, there is still some time needed to, to, to have more research into the impact of the regulation um, that has been put in place in the last years. Um, do you believe that we still need more time to, 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 to understand if uh, we've, been, we've gone maybe too far in this regulation? Uh, we need to understand better. That's, I'm not saying that we need to, we, we, we've, been too, we've gone too far, but I think definitely we need to understand better what uh, what is the impact of rules? And again, one of the uh, issues which were discussed at the time of um, banking crisis in Europe was exactly this. Banks were saying, well, rules are actually constraining. Um, they are too draconian than constraining our profitability. And so this is something that needs to be addressed and thought through rather than say, these are the rules, this is the, the sort of straitjacket and everybody needs to adapt to that. So I think, uh, uh, but from there, from say, we need to understand how to get a flexible, adjustable and resilient uh, regulatory framework uh, and 
from there to jump and say we don't need rules and we just get rid of them, I don't think, uh, you know, th I don't think that is a, 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 it's a good um, step forward. David, what's your view on this? What do you think? Well, about uh, do, do you think it's right that the the increase in, in capital requirements did choke off lending in, well, particularly in Europe? Well, there is there is evidence, and banks says. Um, I, I personally I, is something I've never worked on. No. I don't know. I don't yeah. have data, but banks claim that this is the case. So yeah. perhaps we need an inquiry, at least in Europe, to understand the impact of these rules. Again, yeah. it was something that was somehow decided, and you said, well, ticking the box that we need to increase the capital requirement box ticked. And so what is the impact on this? And which are the different levels? Because not every financial institution is the same. I'd like to mention your last article for, for Project Syndicate, where you say uh, that uh, Trump's America first um, could deal a massive blow to the institutions that underpin the global monetary system. Is this really likely to happen? What can be the consequences? Trump has attacked uh, basically every multilateral institution, except those two that are down on Pennsylvania Road in Avenue in, uh, in in Washington, which are the World Bank and the, the IMF. The There's still time. There is still time, <laughs> exactly. But you know, he, he did the he did NATO, he did everything else except NAFTA, those two NAFTA and, and the name them. Iran, so exactly. yeah. So uh, and 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 these are two institutions where actually the like uh, others, uh, more like security and defense, uh, where the United States are bankrolling these institutions, the main shareholder of both the World Bank and the IMF, for historical reasons and for lots of different reasons, but that's the reality. So it's, it's interesting to think, first of all, the question is, is he going to do something about it? Is he going to turn to them and say, well, we are actually, we're not interested anymore in supporting this institution. Um, there is a precedent, the, well, Congress took almost five years to approve the uh, um, uh, quarter reform in the, uh, in the IMF, and it was uh, quite embarrassing. So, you know, what will happen? What, what is next? Um, I think it's interesting to think that it's, it, this is part of the, you know, rethinking the role of the United States in the world. The reality is then, with Trump, uh, the United States has become a reluctant hegemon. And uh, and the, you know and and that goes very much in terms of providing public goods like security and defense and peace, if you like, and but also to bankrolling the financial stability. And so, uh, what will happen? Um, difficult to say at the moment. Obviously, there are some ob obligations as well uh, as. Uh, as well as privileges in being part of these institutions. But the interesting thing is what the big emerging market economy, which is China, China. will do. And now, China's global economic role. I mean, it's kind of ironic that um, at the G20, it was um, China defending the idea of free trade, not the United States. And the United States being put in the sort of protectionist corner, and China, you know, the great exponent of, of open free markets. What's your view on how the, the Chinese role will develop? Well, again... And in particular, I mean, you know, take the renminbi, will that be internationalized? The plan to internationalize the renminbi is been going on for, you know, China has, has had this plan since 2009, 2010, and is 
comes like uh, is out of necessity and uh, again after the global financial crisis the governor of the people's bank of china the central bank made a speech say oh, actually we need to move away from uh, a a, 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 an international monetary system which is centered on a national currency. And it was very vague. He didn't mention the dollar. He didn't mention any solution. Uh, he opened this, the, 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 the door to, I would say, a, a sort of global currency. I and mean, do you feel that really China remains a mercantilist country? Um, take... I wouldn't use mercantilist country, but it's a country which controls and manages its exchange rate mm. because uh, it has a very tough uh, economic target, which yeah. is, is GDP growth. But part of the strategy is to use international financial centres like London to, to stimulate demand for renminbi yes. uh, uh, denominated assets. Um, and that sort of faltered over the last couple of years, partly because of the, the depreciation of the renminbi. Uh, but now the dollar has weakened. Is that picking up again? And do you see that as, as a viable strategy going forward, given that actually they've been reforming their domestic financial system, which maybe means there isn't going to be such demand for offshore uh, assets? Yeah. The strategy is viable because it underpins a system which it remains close. So the, the capital account of China remains controlled. Like it's been liberalized since 2009, but it's not an open capital account. So that is, and plus they reintroduced capital control uh, very recently. So it's viable because the financial center is a way to somehow create a, a, an asset, an RMB asset, and, uh, and allows the movement um, the inflow and outflows around RMB outside and away from the domestic market. So not sort of threat to financial stability, domestic financial stability for China. Is there any way for them to internationalise their RMB without sort of involving international centres like London and, and therefore benefiting international centres like London? I mean, is that... Is there any alternative? Really? Uh, they do. They have mm. a ready alternative. In fact, actually, I think the the, the big, if you like, uh, um, uh, sort of increase in financial centre, particularly Hong Kong, was in the first five years of this internationalisation. They have been experimented in, with other ways of uh, uh, attractive, uh, attracting inflows and uh, controlling outflows. In under obviously control conditions, and these are the free trade zones that they introduced, for example, in Shanghai, yeah. where they've been experimenting with uh, open an open capital account. So they do these things, and I think going forward, I think financial centers like Hong Kong will be less important. While you know, particularly if the RMB will internationalize analyze more, financial center like London will become more important because it's outside China and eventually it will become a pure financial, uh, a pure offshore centre, like the euro-dollar market here, right? In this section, we discuss Brexit. There's argument that supporters of Brexit put forward that, um, that the benefits of the freedom to do free trade deals with non-EU countries will offset the impact of more restricted access to EU markets. Um, is that possible or probable? Hmm. 
Well, it depends. <laughs> it depends what the EU thinks about this, because the EU, the EU has been very clear. You know, the UK cannot start uh, any kind of negotiation until they have uh, come out sure. of the EU. Um, it depends on the country. The thing is, uh, the large markets, which are those then then that make a difference for the UK, are already somehow engaged with the, the EU. So it becomes really, you know, somehow it's in, it, it will have to go through the EU or some of the deals that the EU has already. For example, the recent FTA agreement with uh, Japan. China, um, interesting, you mentioned the uh, offshore market. Interesting, there are two offshore markets, R&B offshore market in Europe. One is London, the other one is Frankfurt. And again, in terms of uh, um, uh, inflows of R&B from trade, uh, and deposit and so on, uh, Frankfurt is stronger than London because trade between the, the um, Germany and, and, and China is much larger than between yeah. China and the United Kingdom. So the United Kingdom the, in London centre is very much is strong in terms of financial transactions. So, and that really says a lot about the, uh, again, the ambition and the hope of being able to engage uh, with China and you know, create a viable and uh, strong imports and exports. So, I mean, interesting. I mean, there's relatively little trade, I suppose, between given the size of the economy between Britain and China, apart from financial services. What would be the impact of a Brexit, which was a hard Brexit? How do you see the British economy doing? Um, I, it's very difficult to, to make uh, any prediction and I really refrain to do that because for the same reason we don't know what would be the end uh, game here. WTO rules would be how, uh, it, how thing, painful let, Let's or put not it painful. this way, let's put it this way. There is a transition period mm -hmm. and there will be some years between uh, you know, coming out of the EU and establishing a new regime, which is not only with the uh, with the EU, but generally a new setup, and there will be these years of transitions because you can't really establish. You know, this takes time, mm. and and those years will be really difficult. Yeah. Then after that, let's say maybe in twenty years' time, uh, maybe the the UK the UK economy will prosper, will be fantastic, but is that medium to long-term I could be period. in my grave by then. It's not a not very happy prospect. And last, we go into the status of Italy. Moderate pro-European parties were able to, to win most elections in, in, in Europe. Uh, and at some point, everyone was talking about Italy and uh, the five-star movement. Uh, um, now we don't talk about that so much to, because maybe uh, this uh, fear of, of these populist movements in Europe has, has receded. But what do you think will happen in Italy? Well, let me go back to the economy. Italy is a sick man of Europe in the sense, but this is actually something common to um, many Europe, uh, Eurozone countries, except Germany, is the fact that the economy grows, there is a recovery without job creations. Mm. And that is problematic. And that really poses a huge political issue. Um, so, and that is the case of Italy. And in fact now, the economy looks quite, yeah. the outlook will look quite bright, but again, no jobs. And young people move uh, somewhere else. They, they, they emigrate to other countries. Um, 
Now, I'm happy to make a prediction, and I think the Five Stars movement has peaked mm -hmm. and is going to slow down because they lost credibility in terms of, in particular, the local government like Rome, yeah. where Rome now is a city completely, you know, chaotic so and a dysfunctional yeah. and and is really they the, the government of the uh, five star proof complete and effective but i'm very concerned about the what is the hard right yeah. so northern league which is now becoming more a national party a bit i mean like, there was an ft article the other day um predicting an alliance between the northern league and berlusconi, and berlusconi. And that is a possibility, and that will be, and plus the, the other bit of the uh, right. Mm -hmm. So, and migration at the moment is the key variable, uh, factors which will determine the election next year in Italy. And obviously the employment, uh, which goes together, all the social and the fact that people feel the inequality and... and but with these alliances, political alliance taking shape, do, do you believe that uh, there's the risk of Italy having, uh, again, years and years of uh, fragmented governments, short-lived governments? Uh, um, what I'm concerned is, first of all, whether there will be enough, uh, uh, will there be enough support for a government like this to, uh, you know, who will no, come out? And maybe the risk is to be, uh, be like in 2013 when there wasn't a clear winner. And it uh, was really difficult, with, like several weeks without uh, a government. But the return of Berlusconi, how would the markets react to that? I don't think it would be very good. Mm. But in particular because there will be uncertainty, because mm. they won't be able, I don't think they will come up with, uh, if they have a majority, it will be a really um, just about, or we'll have to get some, you know, a coalition as mm. always to, to govern. It would be a government without any competence. And uh, so, uh, and... Uh, because again, the Northern League doesn't have uh, experience in government. So it is going to be uh, really problematic and that really will, will create uh, some disturbance in the markets. Let me ask David and Andre, David first, what other questions would you put to Paolo? Well, on, on the Eurozone, do you, uh, what do you, how do you rate the chances of Macron being able to push through um, reforms to the Eurozone, which will require, involving more sort of central coordination one way or another. Um, uh, what are the chances and how important is that to put the Eurozone on a, on a stronger long-term footing? Well, it is fundamental to put the Eurozone on a long-term uh, uh, trajectory. Um, we know what is need to be done, i.e. fiscal union, but it is politically very difficult. Uh, I think the interesting thing is that Germany has realised and for them is more important the unity of the EU and the Eurozone is more important than some of the issues they had in the past year, like uh, fiscal discipline, although they haven't given up, haven't completely given up on fiscal discipline, but they are a bit softened up. I think the chances on Macron are linked to the chances of Mar Merkel to be elected. So if Merkel is elected, the, the, the duo Macron and, and, and Merkel will be really good news for, for Europe because I think the two together with their problems and their short uh, and their drawbacks, bigger, but they will able to, to do something in Europe. Andre, any? But, uh, um, uh, Mr. Macron, is, uh, is his popularity, he has been uh, coming down uh, quite strongly, okay. in the, in the, in quite dramatically in the last uh, uh, weeks. 
Um, are you confident that he will actually be capable of, of putting uh, his reforms in practice? He's inexperienced in politics, in government. Um, I think he's a, he's, he's a clever guy, and I think he probably will learn from his mistakes, and maybe he will do something to improve his communication. But obviously, we'll have to compromise because everybody has to compromise in, in, in France. He will have to uh, really uh, possibly re reconsider some of his programs and be less ambitious and just get some at least some reforms and... Paola, uh, let me ask you a final question. Um, we've covered an awful lot of ground, China all the way to Brexit, etc. In five years' time, uh, would you be more optimistic about the EU than a Brexited Britain or the reverse? I'm a EU a national, so obviously <laughs> I'm biased <laughs> here. Paula, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. David, thank you so much. Andre, thank you very much indeed for all of you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to PS Voice. Go beyond the news with Project Syndicate by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and by reading our greatest minds at www.project-syndicate.org. Music